All right, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 uh, through 21, we're going to read today. Um, look, hard to perhaps encapsulate and, and, and recap everything that we've walked through in the previous uh, six, seven weeks. Uh, but just right off the bat, look, 1 John, this, this letter uh, is a circular letter. Uh, we believe the Apostle John writes this letter to people who are in churches in and around the area of Ephesus at the, at the birth, at the inception of all of these new churches that are happening. John writes with a very specific purpose. He writes to them to tell them of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. His very person and work, the gospel He gives this to them, and even we see in chapter 1, the way he describes who God is, who Jesus is, who the Spirit is, this triune God, he talks about the fact that he has seen Jesus himself. That this apostle has been not just near Jesus, but with him. He describes it in this way, that he's not only heard God in Jesus. He's not only seen him and he's not only observed him up close, but he's actually touched him. There's a real relationship that he's had with the son of God. And he urges us to believe in, he urges these people he writes to, to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The historical, factual, actual human, wrapped in flesh Jesus that has come. God with us. And then he goes on further to say that believing in this gospel leads to something incredible. It actually leads to life participation in this very gospel itself. In chapter 1 and verse 4, you see this very clear picture that, that there is fellowship now for those who believe in the gospel with the Father and the Son. Through the Spirit. This is what John describes. So belief in this gospel creates and yields this life in the gospel, this participation, which is not just individual, but now is corporate. When we find ourselves in Christ, we find ourselves in Christ with other believers. So John urges here to believe the gospel, to live in the gospel, and then he describes the implications of what the Christian life truly looks like And he calls us to live out the gospel. Not only among the brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, not just by proximity, but those that we would have affection with, but also to an unbelieving world. That we would live out the gospel and that that gospel would be seen as we love the brothers, as we love our neighbors, as we care for others. These three principles... Belief in the gospel, life in the gospel, and living out the gospel are the way that we frame the core values of our church. So when we talk about maturity, we talk about it in light of believing in the gospel. We don't mature past the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't usurp it. We don't go around it. We don't circumvent it. Instead, we go deeper into belief and trust in Christ in all things. That is the mark of Christian maturity. From a standpoint of community, we would say that community is really reflected by life in the gospel. That we now participate in Christian life with one another. That you and I, though we may not share blood, right? We might not be connected in that way. The blood of Christ runs through us and we are connected. We have fellowship with God the Father and Christ the Son through the Spirit. 
And then finally, when we talk about charity, and we've always meant that in the old school sense of the word, what does, that, what does that look like? It's not just stroking a check. It's not just benevolence in a fiscal or a financial way. It is ultimately the life that gives itself away for others. Loving one another. Putting others first. Caring for others in all things. Meaning physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, caring for, praying for others. Those three things are the core, not only of what John writes about, but but the core of who we are as a church. As we close this series today, the goal is for us to see that the gospel truly is love. Not just in a fuzzy feeling kind of way but in a way that assures relationship with God forever. A love that is so pure and so true, so real and so definitive that height nor depth, no thing can separate us from it. Let's look into verses 13 through 21. And see, the apostle closed this writing. So this is 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. It says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, Thanks be to God. These are John's last words. Not ever. But in a very real sense, he's closing this letter. He's wrapping this up. Um, I'm doing this thing right now where I'm involved with continuing education. And so as a result, uh, I'm constantly writing papers. And you know this from any paper you've ever written. You do this thing where you write a thesis. And then you give this giant body. And then you write a conclusion. And the simple way to say it is you say what you're going to say, and then you say it, and then you tell them what you said, right? That's, that's, the whole, that's the whole point of this. This is John's conclusion in this letter. The beautiful thing about what he does, however, is in very many ways it seems like he started here. He says, I write these things to you 
and gives us this very clear, this very, this very easy to understand, this just right in front of us, this very bold and definitive purpose. This is why he writes the letter. So John has been carried along by the Holy Spirit to write these words. What is the purpose of his letter? I think you have last words too. And you can identify with John and understand the gravity of what he says because I think not only do you have last words in a letter that you've written, maybe even a eulogy you've given, maybe a prayer you've prayed, but I think you give last words every day. The Abrams family are an affectionate people, all right? We're pretty emotional. Uh, Most of you know that. Some of you are bothered by that, and I get it, all right? I'm like, I go in for the hug, and you're like, hey, can we start right here, all right? I get it. Um, I do this thing where, where every evening before they go to bed, every time we get off the phone, every time we leave one another, where's the family that says, I love you? Not everybody's like that, not wired like that, and I totally get that. And some of you have relationships where, where you don't have to say that. And there have been times where some of us in the Abrams family have been frustrated with others in the Abrams family, not to name any names. Uh, it's like, why are you, are you just saying this and just wrote, like, do you even mean this? You're saying it all the time. The reality is... There's a deep, deep gravity in these things because it's the most important thing. It's the last thing that we say to each other in each of these moments. Last words have deep meaning. The reformer Martin Luther, when he passed away, the, the story goes one of two ways. Either, either this piece of paper was, was in his cloak or it was on his bedside table. But his last words very clearly were these six words. Three written in his native German, three written uh, in in Latin. Uh, And they are written on my heart in a very literal way. Um, But they say this, Virsen Bettler, hocus verum. And here's what it means. We are beggars, this is true. The last thing he says to a world in which he knows will read these words is that we have nothing apart from Christ. All of life is wrapped up in him. So when we sing that we are the beggars and now we're royalty, we're carrying a deep lineage of faith that John would write about as well, because he would say, nothing matters. These are the last words that matter. This is what is important. Christ above all, and this is what he says. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God, that you may know that you have life, eternal life. John writes this letter primarily to believers. He is writing to a group of Christians. He's not writing to a group of non-Christians to persuade them to believe. He's actually encouraging those who have trusted in Christ to remember and believe the gospel for themselves daily, hourly, moment by moment. That this is not a religious token of the past or something that you proclaimed at a moment, but instead that this is the whole sum and total of who you are. 
This is your identity. That everything begins with belief in who Jesus is. And there's an implication that flows from that belief that ought to change our reality. That we have eternal life. Now you'll remember in verse 12 that John has previously said that he who has life is in the Son. That he who has the Son has life. He makes it very clear that eternal life is only found in Jesus Christ. It is only found in Jesus Christ. And for the believer, this is incredible news. Because today is a day in October, in a moment in your life, but here is the deep reality of what the gospel has done to you By God's providence, through the work of Christ and the revelation of who he is by his spirit. If you believe in the gospel right now, you have eternal life. You experience it now. It is not for the future and it is not for a one day. Life has begun for you. You've encountered Jesus. You and me. And our like... Wonderful and fun, but most of the time, if we're honest with each other, mundane and regular lives, we have Jesus. And if we have him, we have everything. This is the main concern that John has for his hearers, for these in these churches and these readers. And then he goes on to say this in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. So already... We understand that this possession of eternal life, having taken hold of it, and ultimately it actually taking hold of us, means that we now have confidence before God to approach him. So when Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, and he teaches, he says, pray in this way, and he calls God Father... And he reveals God's personhood and his character in a way that's revolutionary. John comes on top of this and says, look, here's what it means. We can approach God with that confidence to intimately call him father. And then to do this, to ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And in verse 15, we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request. What does this mean? That that we pray and that we have what we ask for. If you're like me, you question the validity of that formula. You really do. Anybody ever prayed, and I'm not just Garth Brooks here, but like anybody ever prayed for something they didn't get? Right? You prayed for it, and it didn't come. What is is John teaching here? What is he sharing with these believers? He says, look, here's the main thing. You have eternal life in Jesus Christ. You need to be sure of this. You need to be confident of this, so confident that you understand that you can go to this God and ask him anything And one, he hears you, and that in and of itself is a miracle. And two, 
that he will grant these things, what is he saying? He's pointing us to the bigger picture that prayer is not about, the life of the believer is not about making a laundry list, or no matter how long or short, and getting requests met, but instead yielding oneself to the experience of being transformed by God as our hearts are transformed into his. Our desires, the things that we want, are shaped into and given comfort by his will. Looking at verses 16 uh, through 18, John also closes in this way. He describes this sin not leading to death. And he, asks, he says, pray for that for a brother. Pray for that sin that doesn't lead to death. And God will grant him life. And then he describes a sin that does lead to death. Now, on their own, these words are very hard to discern. Um, if you were just only going to do a Bible study on like these four verses, I would caution you against it. All right. But this is why we would look at, at this letter in context. Why we would understand that this part of the body of the letter really deals with the thesis in the beginning portion of it. What does John say in first chapter in verses eight and nine? Describes. Believers as ones who will sin. People who will sin. But then he says very prescriptively that this is how God has caused us to deal with this sin and come to him and approach him in light of it. We would do this. We confess our sins. And then he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So when John describes these sins that do not lead to death, he's talking about seeing a brother or a sister in sin, one who we know is redeemed, one who we know is identified in Christ and is trusted in Christ, and yet praying for them that they would repent. And that through that repentance, God grants life. Continual assurance forgiveness, mercy, grace, and that that brother or sister could experience life. And he says there is a sin that leads to death. If, you, if you've been with us throughout the entire series, one of the focuses of, of this whole series has been the reality that John writes to this group of believers who has been, they've been infiltrated by a group called the cessationists, a group of people who have left this church, these churches, And they've gone out into Gnostic ways of thought and said, look, we've been given special revelation from God. We don't have to live in such a way that reflects the types of morality that the scriptures of the church says they embrace. They're questioning the very deity of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, as these people who were thought to be believers drift off into apostasy and, and, and are away from the faith, and they're revealed as those who've never truly trusted in Christ. John highlights the sin that leads to death. And what's the sin? It's unbelief. The sin that leads to death is this. It is unbelief in the gospel that he's called believers to believe. 
It is those who do not believe that Jesus Christ came. God incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary. That he lived, that he was crucified, that he was truly buried, that he rose again on the third day, that he appeared to the twelve, that people saw and were in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. Before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Those who don't believe in the reality of the gospel experience a life that leads to death. I would take this moment to say, if you have not trusted in Christ, ask God to open your heart to hear the words of this gospel and to be transformed by who Jesus is. Verse 19, or sorry, verse 18 um, says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. All right, uh, these verses used to give me just deep pain uh, and, and ultimately strike fear into my heart. Because I would read these words and say, I keep on sinning. I keep on sinning. I commit sins. There are things that I do in which instead of leaning into gospel belief, I'm seeking to find life outside the commands of what God has called me to do. Now, most people wouldn't even see it or know it and wouldn't think it's in very brash ways and often say, "What? that's even not even a big deal at times. But the reality is, we are saint and sinner simultaneously. There's no better passage, I think, that encapsulates this than in Romans 7. Paul says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. Anybody feel like that's the story of their whole life? Yeah, me too. So what is John saying here? That he who keeps on sinning, here's what he's saying. We look back into chapter 1, we look back into chapter 3, and we see that consistently throughout this letter, those he describes as those who keep on sinning are, are the people whose their entire character, their entire life is defined by rebellion against God. Those who keep on sinning are not those who are confessing their sins and asking a God to faithfully and justly Forgive them of their sins and cleanse them of unrighteousness. So when you read that and it says keep on sinning, this is not to cause you to have fear. You and I should not have fear if we've trusted in Christ. And if you experience conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit. What this means is those whose whole life is characterized by sin... They are the ones who do not believe and live it out, and we see it in their life. And that's not who we are. We don't keep doing that in such a habitual way that it describes who we are. And instead, we're protected, and the evil one does not touch us. John's written a lot about overcoming the world and overcoming the evil one. And in this next set of verses, he really kind of says in 18 and 19, it gives us the picture 
that the evil one is real, that the enemy is truly seeking to devour. That the enemy's real, so much so that it would seem that the entire world is in his grasp. That this is actually the state of the world in which believers live, that it lies in the power of the evil one. But this is the nature of who we are. Because of, only because of what Christ has done, we overcome the world that lies in the power of the evil one. We experience the opportunity to overcome that. What does that mean? What does it look like? It means this, that the evil one, look into verse 18, does not touch us. No principality, no power. No height, nor depth. Nothing can separate us from the reality of what happens in this gospel that is love. Nothing can separate us from Christ. Not even a whole world that lay in the power of the evil one. And finally, in verses 20 and 21, John very clearly says this. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Two very important things here to see. We know that the Son of God has come, that Jesus has come. This is John pointing again to the historical nature and reality of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is not an idea. He is not merely a teacher. That he is not a metaphor for goodness. That this Jesus is not a construct, this is something that was, that was written as a, as a story to inspire or to encourage. No, he says in a very historical and factual way that the Son of God has come. Jesus eternally generated steps out of heaven and comes and takes on flesh like yours and mine. And then this. And not only has he come, but he's given us understanding. This is the hard reality of true relationship with God. We're a world of seekers and finders. And the gospel is not something that we go out and get. The Son of God has given us understanding through His Spirit. This is revelation. For us to experience Jesus, He has to give Himself to us. And He does so in His life, death, and resurrection. The testimony of men like John who would come and see Him and begin to tell the world so that you and I could know Him. Who is it that we know? Him who is true, verse 20 says. And we're in him who is true, his son Jesus Christ. John writes near to the close, he said, He is the true God in eternal life. This corresponds exactly with what he would say in, in, in his gospel. In John chapter 17 and verse 3, right now, this is eternal life. 
to know the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who he sent. And then he says, to close, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I've always found this incredibly interesting. Because nowhere in this text do we see any mention truly of idol worship. When we see that word idol, we typically think of an image, a thing that's created, something that that takes the form of that to be worshipped. We think of a golden calf. We think of a very practical, tangible, touchable, albeit in some way reverent thing, this thing that is to be worshipped. And John hasn't mentioned this as a concern for his people in this kind of language throughout the entire letter. So what does he mean when he says, keep yourselves from idols? It would seem that in a very clear way he's saying that anything... And I mean anything apart from God the Father, Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God. Anything is an idol. And he says this because he would say to those who know the one true God and Jesus Christ who he sent, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that those people, that you and I, are easily distracted. And that at the core of our sin, we only love ourselves. And we seem to think that we do it very well. We can make an idol out of anything. And while John's particular call is ultimately to, to, to teach this church and these people... To not give in to the belief that Jesus is a thing among many other things. To not give in to belief that is, has that is tried to come into these churches and say, well, Jesus is not truly God. He's not truly God in the flesh. Or that, that life in God does not mean that I have these kind of moral stances where I'm called to do these things or I'm called to exhibit faithfulness or love for others. John says all of these things are as sickening as idol worship. Because anything apart from trust in Christ is just that. It's worship of that which is not him. I always wonder how to do new things or say new things without freaking everybody out. So we're just going to do it. Um, John writes with certainty. He writes with certainty. And look, there's like quippy little phrases in our life that we experience, right? Like what two things are certain? Death and taxes. Right? For you and I, 
the deepest certainty that we'll ever experience, even, even with feeble faith, is this. That if we are in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. That is the reality. That is the certainty in which you and I live. To the degree that John would say, this is the whole reason that I'm writing to you. These are the last words. This is what's important. If I'm going to say anything to you, it's this. If you are in Christ, you possess eternal life. And that perfect love, as he would say in chapter 4, as we just sang about together, that perfect love drives out fear. I want to tell you a little bit of my story, and then uh, I want to invite us to do something unique this morning together as we respond to God's word. Sometimes there are things, I think, in life that, that to a large degree, we've almost always innately just struggled with. And we've tried our best to, to overcome it. We've worked our hardest to, to kind of push back this thing, to, to kind of beat it away, to say, no, I know that's not right, I know that's not true, and yet we still grapple with, we still struggle with feelings of maybe it's failure for you. Maybe it's insecurity. Maybe it's doubt. Um, I want to tell you this, this fun story about how I came to this church. Um, I finished seminary, uh, and, and I'm, I'm looking at different churches and trying to apply to different churches and I'm doing this thing where if I'm, I'm very confident that God's calling is for me and my wife to be able to eat in the future. Um, and talk about certainty. I was never more confident of, of, of anything than that. Um, I get in a position where I know some people at Double Oak, and some people at Double Oak know me. Uh, and at the time, they were kind enough to look, overlook some of that. And, and uh, I, I got to the place where I called upon and just hounded folks here until they would sit me down for an interview and let me interview for this position to be a part uh, of the church. And I'll never forget, in one of uh, my last interviews, uh, that there are some elders and some staff, uh, some senior leadership that are asking me, hey, you know, we're, like, is there anything we need to know about you or just things that you struggle with? Um, and just so that you learn from my story, this is not a great way to get a job, okay? But I said, yeah, I really, really struggle with doubting my salvation. This is not a great thing for a pastor, I would think. All right? But I want to be vulnerable and honest with you and say that for a large portion of my life, I've struggled to believe that I have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And thankfully, by God's grace, in recent, not just weeks, but months, and I would even say the last couple of years, really walking toward a deeper place where God has grown me because I've realized and come to the place where 
I understand to say the Lord is my salvation means that I don't really have anything to do with it. He's done this. Um, I've used the illustration before, but most nights I carry uh, our, our little girls, and they're getting harder to carry. They're getting bigger. Um, but I carry these little girls to bed, and uh, I'll walk them upstairs to their bedroom, and we'll say a prayer, read a book, that kind of stuff. But um, one of my favorite things about being a dad, and I mean this so seriously, is that when they're sleepy and I pick up these kids and I'm walking them up the stairs and they start to feel my grip loosen, they clench up. They squeeze, right? Why? They're afraid I'm going to let them go. And I don't know if you've seen Clover Abrams, but it would be hard to let that thing go if you're hardly hanging on at all. It's just a feather. But these kids feel like they've got to hang on tight because they're, they're, they're scared I'm going to let them go. Here's what John has told us. Jesus is not going to let you go. You're in him. And mysteriously and miraculously through his power, he is in you. So here's what we're going to do this morning. And Paxton, if you, if you and the team would just go ahead and come. Um, we typically respond, I think, in, 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 a, in a way that's very consistent. We'll sing a song. Some of us will sing. Some of us will sit. Uh, some of us will, will just kind of quietly pray. Um, I'd like for us to do something different today. We're going to sing this hymn that you know well, and it's Probably for a lot of you, it's just in your bones. And the words say this, this is my story, this is my song. And this is the way that John writes, and this is what he, he says. He longs to say, not only this is my story, but this is your story. Here's how I'd, I'd like for us to respond today. I'd like for us to sing the first two verses, first two choruses of this song. And this is, believe me, this will be hard to feel in a sense, but this is not irreverent. God is totally pleased with this, I promise. But I'd love for you to, in a very true way, look around this room and go encourage somebody in the gospel this morning. And I mean like physically go and talk to them. So we're going to have a response time where where we sing and then we're actually going to talk to one another. John writes because he wants people to know that they're sure that they're assured in what Christ has done. Jesus Christ has accomplished this and he's applied it to us. We're the great receivers. We get to experience this. There are people in this room that I could look at and and I could during this time I could go up to and say, hey, look, I want to assure you this morning that I've seen Christ in you. I've seen Christ in you. I've seen you demonstrate that you're his. I think it'd be really appropriate for us to do that this morning. To go up to somebody and say, you know what? I know that's your story because I've seen you sing it out with your life. But I also realize that I'm setting up a moment here. We're we're engaging in a moment where some of you guys are new. And some of you don't know one another. But I hope that that even if that's the case, that you would get a picture of, you would see a group of people that have deep relationships and love one another because of what Christ has done in them.
And I hope you don't feel weird and I hope you come back. Well, let's, let's do this now together. I'd love for all of us to stand uh, and let's, let's sing these two verses, these two courses, and then we're just going to take a time to greet each other and to encourage each other in the gospel that we see. To actually take a moment where we live in the gospel together and we live it out by sharing the truth of one another. Sound good? All right, let's worship. Thank you.